Hey everybody, it's Jake Jacobs. Welcome to another edition of New York Update. We are online at nyupdate.org. New York-based news, education, and a few headlines. Coverage over the um, yeshiva issue that we've been speaking about. A lot of people know that uh, New York City has been investigating the religious private schools for not providing the basic education that's required by the state whenever these schools are receiving taxpayer funding. There's been a three-year-long investigation. It's, they've been dragging their feet, and there are still a handful, I think seven or nine yeshivas, who refuse still to um, let inspectors in to see what's going on. And so that's basically an admission of guilt that they're not providing the required minimum services to students and that we really are on the right track um, so if you're following that issue, you know, it's still going. What's changed uh, in the last couple of weeks is that um, because the Democratic majority is now going to be taking over the New York State Senate, it's going to remove Simca Felder, who was a, Bro- a Brooklyn-based uh, New York State senator. It's going to remove him as the power broker that he once was in Albany. It's now going to mean that uh, the these yeshivas are not going to get the same level of protection that they had. Simka Felder had, uh, up till about a month ago, been the crucial tiebreaker between the Democrats and Republicans, and he sold his vote on any given issue, and especially the budget negotiations, in order to get goodies for the yeshivas, including what they call the Simka Felder carve-out, which meant that there would be less scrutiny, there would be less oversight on private religious schools. The uh, chancellor of the uh, New York City schools has tweeted out an update, and it says, yes, these, uh, these seven or eight uh, yeshivas are still not letting inspectors in, and that's a problem. I'm going on Thursday to a pretty big gala event down in the city. Uh, it's AQE, or Alliance for Quality Education's annual Education Champions Ball, or dinner, whatever. And boy, everybody's going to be there. Um, all the IDC challengers who won. The One of the keynote speakers is going to be uh, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who's going to be the new incoming majority leader of the New York State Senate. And, uh, of course, all the big education names from New York City and New York State will be there. Um, I have a lot of friends at AQA. They do great work. My last article uh, for The Progressive pointed out that in the Democratic wave, in the blue wave election, that at least 10 New York State senators were elected who will be replacing pro-charter senators. So that's at least 10 senators that are coming in that are anti-charter or at least are saying now that they will not be interested in expanding charter schools in the state, replacing uh, outgoing senators who lost their seats. At least 10. Uh, There may be more. I haven't exactly chased down, um, but all of the IDC uh, candidates, who anti-IDC candidates, who beat the IDC candidates, and uh, that's Robert Jackson, Jessica Ramos, who we interviewed here, um, Zellner Myrie, Rachel May, John Liu. There, there's a, a couple of others, Julia Salazar, um, David Carlucci, who we interviewed here, is also not interested in expanding charter schools. So what's going to happen? So there could be a negotiation as part of the next budget bill, which is going to be in the spring. The charter industry 
is going to try to expand charters like they always do. And the composition, uh, incoming composition of the New York State Senate is not going to be letting them. Although there could be a wrinkle, and that wrinkle is Andrew Stewart Cousins, who I have spoken to. I never actually got to sit her down for an interview. But Andrew Stewart Cousins is a, uh African-American female state senator from the Yonkers slash Westchester area. She's a former teacher. She's a great friend of uh, the Teachers Union and Organized Labor. And um, she has been the minority leader for years and years. Um, but and, and so she's been locked out of budget negotiations. And now she'll be going in for the first time to bu- budget negotiations. She's also going to be for the first time in charge of the gavel, which means that she can bring things up for a vote. And this is where it gets really hairy because... I just read on social media, either an article or some uh, chatter, that said that Andrew Stewart-Cousins might not be gung-ho about socialized medicine in New York State. You know, last year when we had the Republicans in charge, they held a vote, and it came within one vote of passing the New York Health Act, which would be the first in the nation single-payer, state-based health care system and you know, and possibly a model for other states. I'm not sure how it works with Obamacare, but I think it would supersede Ob- Obamacare, where Obamacare would be available to any state that doesn't already have their own system. And New York, uh, the Democrats and the progressives and people in the medical community and uh, just people are all in favor of single-payer health care, some single-payer health care system. They have a deal, they have a plan sponsor in the New York State Senate is Gustavo Rivera, who is a powerful uh, senator from the Bronx, who's, you know, very senior. And the corresponding assembly member, the sponsor in the New York State Assembly, is the author of the bill. It's a huge, comprehensive package. As you can imagine, it's very complicated. Uh, There's a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot, you know, still left to be determined. I'm sure, you know, whatever system it will be. There will be a lot of, uh, you know, give and take and strategizing and, you know, bringing in stakeholders. But I spoke to Gustavo Rivera, and he told me that they, the Democrats in the New York State Senate plan to introduce this New York Health Act revised bill immediately, as soon as they're sworn in. So that could be January 9th, as soon as the new Democratic majority is seated. And wouldn't that be great on the very first day if they introduced the, the new New York Health Act? I'm hearing some whispers, though, that some people are not so sure that Andrea Stewart-Cousins is behind it. And one of the reasons why has to do with the teachers' union. And so this is interesting. The New York State teachers, they negotiate district by district. New York City, obviously, is a huge district, the biggest school district in the nation and the world. But every And every other district negotiates their health care. So... The state workers, including teachers, cops, firemen, sanitation, correction, everybody, nurses, they have a plan where the state contributes, I believe, something on the order of $1,500 per person per year towards a health care premium or a health care policy or a health care package. And if the New York Health Act is passed, the state will no longer have to do that. And the question is, will that 
benefit that was negotiated be replaced by something of equal or greater value? If not, then according to the article I read, the uh, state labor leaders, the organized labor leaders, are not interested. This is crazy, right? Because I'm a teacher. I'm in the middle of this. I'm in the union. I don't want to deny everybody in New York State something that is vitally necessary for the health just so I can have a benefit. And I would be against my own union if this is true. Rest assured that Andreas Stewart Cousins is going to be at the center of the storm with, you know, a lot of people for and a lot of people against it. Now, you know, you have to remember the way things work in this propaganda world we live in because a lot of times it's really just the health insurance industry behind this. And they need to try and figure out a way to get people to turn against the New York Health Act. And they're not sure how to do it. And so one way that they might do it is to get labor on board, who is traditionally not an ally, you know, like big corporate America. But, if, you know, if they can make it seem like this is coming from labor or coming from seniors, they'll do anything they can. And the defense that they're using, you know, it's pretty slick, but it's kind of stupid. You know, they're saying that uh, if we have Medicare for all, that will take away Medicare as we know it which will be, you know, covering seniors and covering, you know, indigent people and covering people that are disabled. And, you know, it covers, obviously, uh, Medicare covers a lot of people. And so they're going to try and convince people that if we go to a Medicare for all system, that you're going to lose your Medicare and that somehow the new system will not be as good for you because it'll all be spread out, you know, it'll be distributed out across everybody. And so you'll get less. And, you know, it's a great tactic, but it's not necessarily true, right? I mean, there's no reason why, you know, if we just elected a wave of Democrats all across the country, we took over the House, we took over the New York State Senate, that we need to move backwards. And so a lot of this is just propaganda, and it's really slick tactics that they use. And so we'll see what happens with Andrea's through cousins. Let's do this. You know, let's... Um, Let's go through this. You know, there is going to be a big learning curve. There's going to be ups and downs, ins and outs. But New York can do it. If any state can do it, New York can do it. Because once you do New York, the rest of the country is like falling over like dominoes, right? New York is, is going to be the most sticky situation. You know, we have the richest people. We have the poorest people. We have upstate, downstate. You know, it's a really good example. I mean, I would say maybe only California would be better. But, you know, if we can get a, a single-payer plan up and running in New York. We know other countries have done this. We know this is possible. So we just need the political will and we just need to work out the numbers. You know, we have to make sure that people understand healthcare is a human right. It is anyway, folks. You know, when when you show up at the hospital, nobody is denying you treatment. And so, you know, that money is being spent anyway. It's just being spent poorly because instead of preventative care, instead of, you know, maintenance, health maintenance and, you know, keeping people healthy and incentivizing good health, we do it the opposite way. We wait till they get sick and they have like an appendix burst and they're at the door knocking on the emergency room door, you know, and it costs $100,000. They don't have a dime and it all goes into like, you know, a state welfare fund that we all pay. It's a horrible system, right? And plus, you also got to factor in how much are we paying in profits 
to the healthcare company, right? Right now, at least 20% of our premiums are profits. And that's all money, you know, that's replacing healthcare that we could be getting instead. So, Andrew Stu Cousins is going to be a real interesting thing that we got to keep our eye on. We got to watch this space. And speaking of AQE and ASC, Andrew Stu Cousins, we also have AOC, right? Andrea, I mean, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I mean, you cannot turn on the radio, turn on the TV, open up a newspaper without seeing her mentioned. You know, she's the favorite new punching bag of the right. Um, she's scaring the corporate Democrats to death because she represents this new insurgent wave of young voters. They haven't voted in in cycles and cycles, and now they're interested, and they're voting the hell out of these, you know, they're voting these Joe Crowley types out of office. You know, um, they're steamrolling. Julia Salazar is young. Alessandra Biagi, that was the uh, the IDC challenger who I forgot to name before. Um, it, these guys are just in their um, late 20s and early 30s. Julia Salazar is younger than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a new state senator, 27 years old. AOC is 28 years old. Uh, Biagi is 31 years old. Uh, Zellner Myrie is uh, 32 years old. You know, John Liu has been around the block. Rachel May is a little older. But, you know, these are like really young, you know, new people being voted in. In Michigan, you have... Talaib, what's her name, Melissa or Rebecca Talib, the first Palestinian congresswoman. Um, she's very young. I mean, you know, all over. You got Connor Lamb, all these people, much younger, much younger. So right now there's, a, you know, really a really big fear on the part of corporate America, big political donors who have had their way for so long that uh, people like AOC are coming in and that they're going to, you know, really spread the word that, you know, corporate dominance is over. Now it's time to, you know, reject any candidate that takes the big money, that takes the dark money. Only vote for, you know, small donor candidates. And, you know, what that what that will mean is, you know, we will go back to representative democracy. I mean, if we ever had it, but, you know, we will be going towards it. So this puts the Republicans and the conservatives in the same boat as the corporate Dems, right, that, that are going to lose their power. And, you know, the corporate Dems, I would even say that, you know, that they've been paid to lose for years, all these lobbyists and consultants. They don't even care if the Democrats are in charge or the Republicans. They just, you know, don't want the grassroots to be in charge. They don't want the, uh, the Bernie types or the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez types to be in charge. And so it's really interesting that AOC has become this this new lightning rod. You know, a lot of people are making fun of her. They say she makes a misstatement or, you know, her thoughts are scrambled and she doesn't understand this or that. Folks, she's 28 years old. I mean, when I was 28 years old, I could barely put two sentences together, you know. And, uh, you know, she got uh, elected to Congress. She's going in and she's got power. She's representing the Bronx and the, and Queens. And she's going in there with a mind to clean up campaign finance, right? So I love this. I love this. You know, and so she is also one of the biggest champions of single-payer health care. And, you know, this is going to be a big deal on the national level, too, in January. <clears throat> so how's this going to work? Well, a lot of Democrats, a lot of mainstream Democrats, like Cory Booker, 
and Kirsten Gillibrand and Kamala Harris have already signed on to the Bernie Sanders plan. You know, whatever it is, they've signed on to the idea of single-payer health care. And so, you know, we're getting closer and closer to that majority line where we could actually pass a bill in the House. Um, and so there, the question is, what about Nancy Pelosi? Would she allow a vote on it? Right? You might have the, the votes to pass a bill in the House. That doesn't mean Nancy Pelosi would allow a vote on it because, remember, she is a big corporate Democrat. She has taken the big money. She is a big bundler and a big fundraiser. She has, you know, worked her whole career. It's about big money and money raising and, you know, giving money to candidates. I know she's effective, but the knock on her is that she's too corporate. And, you know, she's said plain out that she's not as gung-ho about single-payer health care as as the progressives are. So this is the big fight. It might not all happen this cycle. 2020 might be a part of it. If Trump is actually on the ballot in 2020, you know, it will probably help the progressive cause even more. I'm not going to get into who might run on the Democratic side. Pretty far away from 2020 with everything that's unfolding now, you know, under the Trump administration, the madness. So I like it. I I think that Ocasio-Cortez can take it. You know, I think she's built for this. She, you know, she goes online, she goes on Twitter, she mixes it up with Republicans, she gives it right back to them. Folks, if you have any questions about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and what she means at being the youngest member of Congress ever elected, displacing Joe Crowley, the number four, just go to her website and read what she wrote about campaign finance reform. It is so vital and so important that we really clean up our elections. I am definitely a supporter, and that is why, because she got elected on a shoestring budget, hard work, you know, displaced a, a, a corrupt, you know, establishment Democrat. You know, and there, there's, a, there's another story, by the way, um, on who is going to be replacing Joe Crowley as the number four in the party leadership. So since we last spoke, Nancy Pelosi was voted in as the majority speaker, as the Democratic majority speaker of the House. She is currently third in line for the presidency. Yes, uh, um, you know, if Trump did get impeached and, you know, somehow Mike Pence was also, you know, tossed out of office, uh, Nancy Pelosi would become the president. How about that? But um, they they did hold a vote uh, of all of the incoming members of Congress, and Nancy Pelosi won pretty handily. There was some opposition, and um, you know one of the concessions that Nancy Pelosi made, she, you know she will be in in this current term. Um, kind of grooming somebody else to take the position. In other words, she's not going to, you know, she's not here for like, you know, five years. She's not going to be here for the long haul. Uh, it makes sense because she's extremely old. I'm not sure how old, but I think she's over 70, maybe over 75. Um, and, uh, you know, and there there is, you know, some hunger out there for some new faces and some fresh blood. So one, one member of Congress who got reelected, from Brooklyn, goes by the name of Hakeem Jeffries. And Hakeem Jeffries is um, a pretty popular uh, congressman from his area, and he's pretty good on most issues, but he takes a lot of corporate money. Only 1.3% of his campaign donations in the last cycle, which is the last two years, came from small donors. 
right? That means 98% of his donations came from big donors, corporations, PACs, lobbies, consultants, bundlers. Because of that, he supports charter schools. We're against privatization. We are for public schools. There was a vote for the number four position. This is called the House Democratic Caucus Chair. And the new chairman of the House Democratic Caucus is Hakeem Jeffries. He's the new number four in Democratic leadership in the House behind Nancy Pelosi. He beat out Barbara Lee. Uh, Barbara Lee, as you might recall, is an African-American congresswoman from California who has is great. She's a very long-serving congresswoman. And if you remember all the way back to the authorization for military force during the Bush administration, she was the only member of the House on either side that voted against the use of military force as a response to uh, 9-11. You know, as we know, the Iraq war was a, was a mistake. It was a farce. Um, Afghanistan was also very wrong-headed, although, you know, everybody agreed at the time that we should invade Afghanistan and go into battle with the Taliban. They had nothing to do with 9-11. They, the only thing they had to do was that they were harboring Osama bin Laden, but they were not part of the plan. They didn't know what he was up to. They were not involved. The Taliban is a very localized thing in Afghanistan. And we are still at war with them now in 2018. It's 16 years of war, the longest war that we just had some um, troops. I think 12 troops were blown up last week in Afghanistan. It's, it's just, you know, never ending. You know, they call it the, the graveyard of empires for a reason. And Barbara Lee, people might remember, is that she was the only member of the House back then to vote against the war, the stupid war. And, you know, I'm against it now. We should have pulled out a long time ago. It was a mistake. Iraq war was not only a mistake, it was a lie. It was, you know, it was falsified uh, intel. So Barbara Lee was up for the um, leadership position. She was initially challenging Nancy Pelosi for the speaker position. But, you know, she didn't have the juice for that. Um, so then she ran for the number four position, caucus chair, and she only lost by 10 votes. It was a final vote of 123 to 113. And so a really strong progressive came that close. But instead, we have somebody, and this is on the national level, right? Remember, Hakeem Jeffries is a congressman from Brooklyn. But when you're in the leadership, you know, you're the chairman of the Democratic Caucus, you have a lot more power Besides the power that the voters gave you, you have decisions about what's going to come up for a vote, what the strategy is going to be for running candidates. I mean, there's so much more. And so Hakeem Jeffries is now the number four. Uh, it's a really big win for DFER, Democrats for Education Reform, who um, are funded in large part by Alice Walton and Wall Street hedge fund managers. You know, why Democrats take money from Wall Street hedge fund managers and the Waltons, I don't know. They've been doing it ever since the Clintons. The Clintons were in bed with the, the Waltons back from Arkansas. Hillary served on the board of Walmart when they first started out. She was on the board of Walmart for, I think, six years. I believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt. I hope that ha Hakeem Jeffries is successful. You know, I hope the Democrats are successful. But... 
I oppose charter schools. I oppose charter school PACs. I oppose the billionaires that fund charter schools, uh, Democrats for Education Reform, DFER. You know, these are all bad actors. And so good luck in your new position. We hope that you'll rethink your uh, position on charter schools. Uh, you know, they're a mistake. Charter schools are awful. Uh, education headlines. Let's see what else we got here. Those 10 state senators that I mentioned before that are anti-charter school, we interviewed a few of them, and they're also against high-stakes testing. Uh, that's, a, that's a slightly different issue. High-stakes testing, you know, in New York, we have the Common Core, math and ELA, federally mandated tests that come around every spring. And so these candidates that are coming into the New York State Senate, the IDC challengers I mentioned, which is Robert Jackson, Alessandro Biaggi, Zellner Myrie, Jessica Ramos, John Liu, and Rachel May, also Julia Salazar, a number of them uh, went on record saying that they oppose high-stakes testing. I want to say also David Carlucci, who has two young boys um, in school now. Um, he's also against high-stakes testing, so maybe, just maybe, we could get, see some legislation. Well, that would, again, depend on Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who has not weighed in on the issue. But it's going to be interesting. I mean, this year's opt-out could be really big because now that there's a Democrat uh, majority, um, you know, they might people might opt out as a political statement to try and get the legislature to actually pass a law to improve the tests or reduce the tests or eliminate the tests or, you know, get rid of them or revert to local control. There's a lot of different options. We have been uh, asking specific questions to the candidates who won, and they are heading up to Albany now with a mind to reduce the amount of tests that our students are subject to. So that's really, really interesting stuff. Here is a headline from December 1st, a report that came out. The website that reported on it is called Intellectual Takeout. It was a really interesting article that noted that literacy is under attack in public schools. You know, they feel that it's a coordinated attack to dumb down our students so that they just vote like ignorant idiots. There is a former teacher of the year by the name of John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O, who wrote a book called Dumbing Us Down. And they're saying in this uh, that the common core, the introduction of standards, of national standards, is a way of de-emphasizing literacy and substituting childish books for serious ones. You know, when you kind of like standardize everything, you kind of average it out. So you might have some high-achieving readers that are all of a sudden reading mediocre books. And then you might have some struggling readers who are challenged that are being forced to read books above their level. And that's how it works, folks. That's how standardization works. I can tell you as a classroom teacher, stupid idea. You really should leave it up to teachers to decide what's best for those kids in that classroom on any given day. But we don't have that. And so there's a, an interesting report on that now that is claiming that the introduction of Common Core and that you know the new movement that we're seeing um, you know, is uh, specifically and deliberately meant to dumb down our students. Uh, one of the things that they note is that instead of uh, giving chapter books out, there's a lot more emphasis now on books that have pictures in it. 
that there's a lot of nonfiction stuff that has charts and graphs and like, you know, oh, everybody's a visual learner now. You know, they're saying that this has had a negative effect because, you know, we used to be more conceptual readers. You know, our students used to be, you know, more um, non-visual. They used to be more literacy-based. And so that's going away. Interesting stuff. If you want to check it out, it's on a website called Intellectual Takeout. Back to headlines. The last headline that's going to get us all caught up is from my friend Nicholas Tampio. He is a Fordham professor, research professor, and he tweeted out on December 3rd, a superintendent told me in early 2014 that New York couldn't move to online common core testing because poor districts couldn't afford the technology. In other words, they didn't have enough computers. When you do online testing, it's ridiculous because every kid has to take the test at the exact same time. And that's pretty stupid. You know, for a school that does not have one computer for every single kid, you can't do that. You know, you have to take turns. What happened since between 2014 and now is that Governor Cuomo pushed a bond called the Smart Schools Bond. In the last session, they allocated lots and lots of money for it. Um, and the plan is now unfolding. And so one of the things that they're doing with our taxpayer money is to expand the number of computers in school in order to give the common core tests online to every student all at the same time. And so they're moving towards that. Folks, that is a really big giveaway to the technology companies, right? Remember all of the computers that we're buying? We already have plenty of computers in school. Uh, I think I have seven now. No, I have eight, including my laptop. I have eight, my school laptop. I have eight computers in my classroom, which is plenty. If a kid wants to look something up, you know, we have a bunch of iMacs. They're not the greatest. Some of them are slow and old. One of them has a cracked screen, but they work. Um, You know, why do we need a new cart of laptops or Chromebooks or whatever? Well, that's in order for Google and Dell and Apple and um, Compaq, no, what's Lenovo, all of these uh, high-tech firms to make tons and tons of money. So the Andrew Cuomo announcement will be that he approved 58 investment plans, $383 million for broadband and other technology upgrades in New York City school. It's all part of a $2 billion Smart Schools Bond Act. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but not this uh, past election day, but the previous, there was, or maybe maybe two years ago, there was a referendum on the back that said, do you approve of the Smart Schools Funding Bond? And it did get voted in, so an, you know enough New Yorkers were in favor of it. And this is what it's doing. Now, I'm not against, you know, using technology in school. I'm not against upgrading schools. But, you know, how about we you know, repair the water fountains so that they're, they don't have lead in them before we get new computers, you know, or the uh, cracked uh, paint that's falling into the kids' laps, you know, that's like, you know, full of asbestos and everything. I mean, you know, there's a lot of money that can be spent in education. One of the reasons why standardized testing is being forced upon us is because Bill Gates and you know, Laureen Powell Jobs and Michael Dell and all these guys, Hewlett Packard and all these guys have been the ones pushing it and promoting it. They've been wanting us to take standardized tests so that they can automate everything, right? They love multiple choice tests because they can be scored 
automatically by a by a machine, right? It doesn't matter what the kids knows; it just matters what bubble they circled out. And so that you know, that's how Ross Perot got rich. It's like you know these automated processes, and so that's how standardized testing got pushed in the first place. We're talking about 2002, and here we are now. We're still expanding something that we should be reducing. This goes on to say, this was proposed by the governor, overwhelmingly approved in 2014. Uh, So my memory was right, except I had the wrong year. Helping schools to equip uh, students with the skills they need to thrive and succeed in the global economy. Yeah, BS, you know, to, to, to buy them a whole bunch of computers. Smart mouses and you know facial recognition, the security thing, you know all this technology stuff, and you know some of this not in New York, but some of these like technology bills, um, you know, and funding bonds, um, you know they want to buy guns, they want to they want to arm and train teachers and school staff. Reading again through the Smart Schools Bond Act, we are bringing every classroom into the 21st century. Cuomo said. Um, in today's economy, it is essential for students to have the latest technology. Right. Well, how about read, learning how to read books, you know, and writing and, you know, drawing and, and doing sports? They're all sitting on a computer at their house. You know, they have a damn phone in their pockets by age 10 or 11. So this latest investment for New York City schools, it's a big boondoggle. Let's see, the Smart School Review Board approved investment plans submitted by New York School District 50, that's not my district, 50 additional school districts and six special education schools. Again, $383 million plan, $250 million to expand and upgrade schools' digital networks to ensure the consistency of wired and wireless broadband connectivity. You know, we have broadband in, in my school. Sometimes when you go online, it's slow. If every kid is doing the same thing at the same time, it do, it's not just slow. It just dies. And that's exactly what happened last spring You know, when they tried to expand online testing. It didn't work. It's not smart to have every kid online at the same time. It's just dumb. Reading, this investment coupled with other investments already underway will allow New York City school buildings to have access to broadband speeds of 100 megabits per second or higher per 1,000 students. It also budgets $133 million for the purchase of technology devices, including laptops, desktops, tablets, charging carts, and tools to integrate the devices into the network. So there you go. Ensuring upgrades in struggling and persistently struggling schools, expanding blended learning programs, and implementing computer science for all initiatives. Oh my God, is this such a mistake? You know, my last school, not my current school, I worked at a very high need school for four years. And the last thing you want to do is bring in a whole new set of brand new laptops. <laughs> Because the kids drop them on the floor, they hold them wrong, they uh, download viruses, they download adware, spyware, malware. If it's a struggling school, the supervision, you know, sometimes can't keep up with the behavior problems. And And sometimes they just use computers as babysitters. Just the opposite. Those are the schools that should probably concentrate on the basics. And I'm a teacher. I'm telling you, I was in these schools. You know, it's good to have some computers. But they don't need to be like brand new shiny laptops. They should give those, you know, to the high powered schools where the high performing kids are are doing coding and programming, and then rotate out, you know, the laptops that they're using 
to give them to the struggling schools because, you know, they're just going to beat them up. I'm telling you, I've seen kids throw laptops across the room. So this is the Smart Schools Bond Act. You know, it's Cuomo. It's his state budget director, Robert Mujica. You know, they have these great uh, platitudes. By ensuring connectivity and modern technology, the plans approved today will transform classrooms into modern learning centers preparing students for success, no matter their zip code. No, if you take a struggling kid that's four years behind grade level and put a computer in front of them, they're probably going to start playing games and listen to SoundCloud, right? I know. They're going to put in headphones. They're not used to paying attention in school, focusing, learning how to read maybe, learning how to write, you know, playing sports, doing art, playing a musical instrument would be a lot more useful to just get these kids caught up first and then give them a brand new computer. And, you know, it's a great thing, but it's a huge giveaway. It's it's getting late. What I'm going to do now is transition into a recorded segment. This is going to be going over... Trump collusion. I know I don't speak about national politics very much, but here's a segment Hope is going to explain to undertake something very difficult and that is what's going on. Unpacking the Trump collusion accusations and where we stand right now, uh, November 19th, 2018. This has been a long drawn out affair uh, over a year, the Mueller investigation It started with accusations that the Russians had infiltrated the Trump campaign. People are suspicious that Vladimir Putin was directing Trump, that that he actually put him up as a Manchurian candidate originally just to uh, make a lot of uh, havoc and chaos, but they actually won. Um, And the accusation is that Putin manipulated the election in a couple different ways. He promoted Trump and he mostly denigrated Hillary Clinton through propaganda that was targeted to specific people on Facebook through the uh, famous uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal. And yes, they have a massive database of American voters and they cut and slice them, they divide them up, they give them ratings. This one is firmly for Hillary, this one is firmly for Trump, and then these people are in between. You know, you have the Bernie voter, and as the accusations go, the uh, Russians or, you know, using uh, like Macedonian, uh, you know, cutouts or using, you know, third-party cyber teams was uh, creating propaganda, writing it. Some of it was uh, true and negative, you know, towards Hillary Clinton. And some of it was just completely made up. Like, you know, she's sick, she's dropping dead, she's got dementia, she, you know, she's got leprosy, whatever, you know, there, every day there was something new. These archives are, are out there. Uh, Congress has actually posted links to them where you could see a vast library it's like a very inconvenient download, but you, you can download to see if you, too, were fooled by Russian propaganda. So we know that the Russians were doing this. There were specific indictments during the Mueller indictment uh, of uh, the GRU, I think 18 officials uh, named, um, who um, hacked the DNC, who hacked John Podesta, and they apparently have some sources that gave them the names and the... Uh, time that it happened and you know they have all the evidence in the indictments trump himself has said that 
He believes the assessment of the intelligence agency and the indictments. He hasn't questioned that. So what did, you know, what, if anything, did Trump do wrong? And what, if anything, did his campaign staff do wrong? Well, his campaign staff has already been convicted. And although it is not directly related to Trump campaign activities, it is fair to say that Donald Trump hired criminals. He avoidably hired known criminals, Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen, just to name two, but others as well, Rick Gates. Um, these guys were laundering money. These guys were taking uh, payoffs. They were unregistered lobbyists. Manafort had been working for years as an unregistered foreign lobbyist, working for Russian-backed Ukrainians, right? Which basically means allies of Vladimir Putin, but they don't want it to come from Russia, so they go across the border, and you know, there's a lot of Russian influence in Ukraine anyway, that's why they were able to annex Crimea. They have their sympathetic forces inside Ukraine, which is supposedly a sovereign state. Anyway, and so, and you know, and that's where a lot of this began, because when Russia annexed Crimea in 2012, it soured the relationship between Russia and the U.S. The Obama administration levied sanctions. It was not only that, it was also the murder of journalists and whistleblowers. One person I remember reading about was just found sh shot dead in his car, parked right outside the Kremlin. So, you know, it's pretty just like commonplace in Russia to have this happen. And in America, it was rare, but they did sanction Russia for that. That's the Magnitsky Act, or the Maginsky Act, if I'm pronouncing it right, where Russian oligarchs or, you know, Russian assets were seized by the U.S. government in retaliation for humanitarian atrocities. You know, they uh, not only shot and uh, murdered reporters, but they also used radioactive polonium to poison whistleblower, you know, a former Russian intelligence agent who ended up blowing the whistle and relocating to Britain where he was poisoned by, uh, supposedly by agents. And, you know, on it goes. So here's what uh, Trump is in hot water for and what Mueller is probing, among other things. The really big thing that sticks out is the Trump Tower meeting where Trump's senior campaign staff, that means his son, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, his campaign manager at the time, and Jared Kushner, his senior foreign policy advisor, all took a meeting where uh, we saw the email leading up to the meeting, and the email said that Russian officials, you know, representing the Kremlin, wanted to meet the Trump campaign, and they wanted to present sensitive, damaging information to Hillary Clinton. And it did not state at the time that it was the WikiLeaks, that it was stolen emails, that, that, that it was hacked, but these guys said they had sensitive information. They could say, for all we knew, you know, it was a, a leaker inside the Hillary side that gave it to them. I didn't know that it was illegally obtained. Once they found out that this was um, illegally obtained, they had a duty to report that to the authorities. And failing to do that means that they were colluding, that they were aiding the Russians in getting away with the fact that they had this sensitive 
information which just possession of it is illegal because how did you get it? The hacking was the crime and then possessing it, it's criminal if you're helping the hacker, right? Like if I just downloaded it off WikiLeaks and I, you know, read all the emails, that's not a crime. I have no idea who the actual hacker is and I don't know, you know, I'm not helping them in any way. And the whole argument about WikiLeaks is that, you know, they say that they're doing a greater good, you know, they're exposing these sensitive internal emails from the DNC, from the Hillary campaign, personal emails, but it's necessary because they were doing things wrong, right? They were breaking the rules. They were, you know, for example, they were rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders or they were illegally bundling money that exceeded campaign contribution limits. Illegal coordination, you know, political action committee, it's not supposed to coordinate with a campaign. There was uh, things that the lawyer did, Mark Elias, or Mark Elias, however you pronounce it, was advising the DNC to, to smear Bernie Sanders, to call him a liar, and to discredit him. Well, the DNC has certain bylaws and they're not allowed to do that. They're supposed to be neutral, independent party officials that during a primary do not take sides. So the WikiLeaks, you know, the reason why they can get away with putting all this stuff online is they can say it's for the greater good. The privacy aspect is overruled by the overriding public interest, you know, the need to know so that you know, because there's corruption or illegal activities, or in this case, it might not be illegal, but it might be violations of the bylaws. And so there were lawsuits that were brought by people who donated to the DNC because they said, uh, hey, look, I, you know, I donate to the DNC in good faith, and you guys are rigging the election, you know, for one candidate over the other. You know, maybe I was donating for uh, the DNC because I wanted Bernie Sanders to win, and you, and you rigged the primary against him. And the emails showed different ways that they rigged it. You know, so the WikiLeaks, they can claim the, the journalist thing. You know, and then you have the Trump campaign. So they took this meeting, and we don't know exactly what happened in the meeting, but we know that uh, Trump Jr. took a cell phone call from an unidentified number. He was asked about it. He claimed he doesn't know who the number was or he forgot. <laughs> this doesn't implicate Donald Trump. Well, it does. Because when Trump did become aware after the meeting, there was an offer on the table. And we know that the Russians wanted to help Trump win because Vladimir Putin said so when he was asked at a press conference on live TV in Helsinki. The question is, was there a quid pro quo? And did the Trump campaign agree that they were going to interfere with a U.S. election in any way? That would be pretty major, you know. And Donald Trump Jr. is already on the hook for doing this just by taking the meeting and, you know, not reporting that the Russians were contacting a campaign. I mean, that's interference on the Russian side. So where does that leave us with Trump? So when Trump found out about the meeting... What he was supposed to do is say, oh, what? My son took a meeting with Russians that have stolen intel, that they have, you know, sensitive documents. He was supposed to call the authorities right then and there. I mean, Donald Trump Jr.'s defense, if you read his congressional transcript, his defense is that he did not know what he was doing was a crime. And, you know, I would say that's actually fair to say because he is so ignorant about law and everything, you know, pertaining to foreign policy and elections that 
it's, it's quite likely. What we have to think about is the moment Trump learned about the Trump Tower meeting, he was supposed to contact the authorities. Not doing so is helping the Russians because you're keeping their secret that they have sensitive information and that they operationalize that information by contacting one of the campaigns and tried to help them get elected. So that is interference with an election on the Russian side. So did Trump help them do that? Yes, because he didn't go to the authorities immediately or ever, <laughs> he was aiding and abetting the Russians in interference of an election. And you know, there's degrees of this, but what we know so far is that Trump not only didn't go to the authorities, but he actually dictated a memo that Hope Hicks took. The memo said, that, oh, we were meeting about something innocuous in Trump Tower. This was just about adoption. And that was the official cover story. So that is a lie. And it's usually not illegal to lie. Trump does it every day. He does it all day long. But it is illegal to lie to investigators. And Trump Sr., well, we don't know. He is just, like, submitting, I think they said he was going to submit them, like, this week, his written answers to Mueller's questions. And th this might be the exact area that Mueller wants to know. You know, like, when did you learn about the Russian stolen emails? What did you do at that point? And Trump is going to have to concoct some, some new version because we already know that he changed the story. When he originally said, or his spokespeople originally said, Trump did not draft the memo that said it was innocuous adoption discussion. And then later, Trump himself said it was him. He did draft the memo. Now, what happened in between was that Hope Hicks, who is a former model that Trump hired to be a senior campaign communications staffer, she was deposed. She was subpoenaed and she had to testify either in front of the congressional committee or a grand jury explaining what she saw and what she witnessed. And because the Republicans controlled the House Judiciary Committee, they let her off the hook. They did not make her testify, and they did not make her incriminate Trump or Trump Jr. or Manafort or anybody. The Republicans in the House Judiciary Committee just kind of let her slide. That's going to change in January when the Democrats take control of the House Judiciary Committee and Adam Schiff will be the chair of the committee. So they have already announced that they're going to call Hope Hicks back and that they're going to ask her who dictated the memo, what was said. Hope Hicks was there when they discussed, hey, let's you know craft a couple of lies and a cover story. Well, that becomes charges. That becomes, you know, each one of those acts is a count of uh, either obstruction of justice or colluding with the Russians, in which case there would the specific U.S. code charge would be, it's like something like Title 18, uh, uh, helping to interfere with an election, helping a foreign government or a foreign state interfere with a, a U.S. election. There's a lot happening now. We know Roger Stone is involved now. He is possibly the original go-between for the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks and or even deeper like the Russian source, Guccifer 2.0. Once Roger Stone started to be questioned, that led to other people. That led to Jerome Corsi, Peter Schweitzer, and the Brexit guy, whose name escapes me, also um, coming under the spotlight. And so Roger Stone did lead 
prosecutors to other people. You know how it is, you know, if you don't want to give up Trump, you give up some other people, and if you can give up enough people, they might give you a deal, or enough of a deal, so that you can get yourself off the hook. I don't think that's going to actually be happening. Roger Stone, apparently, you know, they have his emails, and they know what we don't know. And so, uh, you know, we have to kind of just wait in abeyance. Donald Trump Jr. has been mentioning to friends that he expects to be indicted. Roger Stone has said he expects to be indicted. Manafort has already been indicted. Two of the counts that he pled guilty to were plotting against America with a foreign state that has to do with his uh, prior unregistered lobbying. Um, he also has, you know, a whole slew of financial crimes, hiding the money. So basically, tr you know, Trump hired a criminal, and now, uh, because he hired a criminal, uh, Trump is in hot water himself because the criminal supposedly testified, Michael Cohen testified, the other criminal that Trump hired. And so we'll see what will happen. Some people say that you cannot subpoena a sitting president, you cannot indict a sitting president. Even if that's true, there is a plan in place. Uh, the Mueller team actually hired Watergate prosecutors, even though they're old men now. Um, he hired at least one who provided the, the Watergate roadmap. And the, the Watergate roadmap is, you know, an outline of what they did to get Richard Nixon out of office when Nixon uh, was stonewalling and, you know, there was a showdown between the separation of powers. And what they did in that case was, you know, Nixon was, you know, they were assuming that he was going to refuse to comply if they indicted him. So instead of writing up an indictment, what they did was they wrote up a report which um, spelled out the, the nature of the evidence of the crimes that Nixon committed. So, you know, on this date, this happened. On this date, this person said this. On this date, this person did that. What happened was the uh, prosecution team during Watergate presented that evidence to a grand jury. And they asked the grand jury to, to hold a vote. And the, whatever the verdict was, was going to determine whether or not the grand jury shared the information with the House Judiciary Committee. And that, you know, where impeachment would begin in the House of Representatives and in the Judiciary Committee. They were prepared to do that, but when Richard Nixon found out the nature of the evidence that was being presented to the grand jury and that was going to be then presented to the House Judiciary Committee, Nixon just resigned. Um, nobody thinks that Trump, if he's put in that same position, would resign. But Mueller, um, if, uh, if he's fired by Trump, or if there's like a Saturday Night Massacre or something, or even if this Whitaker guy, uh, Matt Whitaker, tries to impede uh, the investigation. Um, what I've heard, um, following a couple of really good reporters and podcasts and, and what have you, is that Mueller intends to write a similar report that would go to a grand jury. A grand jury would vote on whether or not to pass the information along to the House Judiciary Committee. So, you know, basically just following the exact Watergate roadmap. Um, the, the difference being that nobody expects that Donald Trump would give up easy and just resign, uh, that he would, you know, go the next step and the next step. So you kind of have to think ahead, uh, you know, what would happen next. And so that's why it's interesting that in this context of this impending showdown, right, 
Donald Jr. is is on the hook for lying to investigators. Um, uh, you know, a lot of Trump campaign staffers are um, because they engaged in a cover-up to help the Russians get away with the fact that they were um, peddling uh, stolen emails. Um, so what um, what happened is the Watergate prosecutors never revealed until a couple of weeks ago that the special prosecutor whose name was Leon Jaworski back in the back in those days um, was preparing an indictment and they felt that they did have the constitutional basis to do so because the house or the other branches were supposed to be a check on the president who had committed crimes and there was evidence of it and they never revealed until a couple weeks ago that they did plan to indict Richard Nixon and that they had drafted the whole thing up. And I believe the reason why they have revealed that now is because we're entering a similar circumstance with Trump. If Trump is indicted, yeah, of course he's going to fight it. A lot of people say that Trump cannot be indicted. But, you know, look, if you know if Trump took a gun and shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, of course he could be indicted. So, you know, there are circumstances where it's, you know, it's obvious that the president is not above the law. And so, um, you know, they're, they're going to argue that this is one of those circumstances, and Trump will argue the other way. Um, Trump, I mean, what happened in Watergate was um, basically after he was caught dead to rights, Nixon just kind of went away quietly. So this could be much different from Watergate, and this could be much messier. But, you know, that's the fix we're in, because Donald Trump hired so many criminals in the White House and, and on his staff and on his committee, right? Um, Flynn is supposed to be sentenced this week. When General Flynn is or um, is sentenced, it will be an indication of whether or not he has been helping the prosecution against Trump. If he gets a light sentence, then it indicates that he has been helpful. If he gets a heavy sentence, then it indicates that he's been keeping his mouth shut and he's going to go to jail for a long time. So, a lot of really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a little slice of it. I know a lot of people just, you know, don't get that deep in the weeds, but I do. And so this has been a field report on the Russia collusion story, which I never really cover. And now we understand why. So there it is. Okay, so that was... Obviously, about a week and a half ago, and the situation on the ground has changed. As I'm speaking to you today, Tuesday the 4th, there's a lot more unfolding. And uh, so that was kind of like a catch-up. Michael Cohen really uh, dropped a big one last week, and uh, that wasn't reflected, so we'll have to go over this. But I don't speak about uh, national stuff or Trump very much, and that was really, I apologize, uh, but it was um, organizing the entire thing, you know, in a little time capsule, and that's why uh, we make these recordings, because it might be valuable later on. Uh, we're going to sign out. I want to thank Richard at rocklandworldradio.com, and we will be back next Tuesday. Tune in at 7 p.m., and if you want to interface with us, we're at nyupdate.org, or click on the Facebook, and then you could leave us a, a message Welcome anytime. Signing out, this is Jake Jacobs for newyorkupdate.org. Exciting online TV and radio. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Welcome, Welcome to the new to sound, sound of Rockland. Rockland, Rockland, Rockland worldradio.com. World Exciting, Exciting online TV and radio. radio. Watch and listen to what you've been missing. Broadcasting independent music.